uh, was liberating just to want to know what Jesus um, thought, if anything, about economics and social justice, and just to deeply dive into the text and try to let him speak for himself. So mm -hmm. I did it because I was curious, because I'm an economist, that's my day job, um, mm -hmm. and I'm a Christian, that's my all-day job, um, <laughs> and I wanted to know what Jesus thought. Welcome into The Harvest. Friends, this podcast is dedicated to helping you be a disciple and make disciples in the everyday places of modern life. I've got a guest today. Jerry Boyer is an economist. He is the author of The Maker Versus the Takers, What Jesus Really Said About Social Justice and Economics. And he's the host of Meeting of the Minds podcast. Jerry, thanks so much for being on the show with me today. Andrew, thank you so much for the invitation. I don't remember who put me onto your book. Uh, I wish I did. I've been asking different people, are you the one that told me about uh, the maker versus the takers? And so far, I can't find someone who uh, who remembers. You don't know who to blame. <laughs> <laughs> no, but whoever it was, I want to thank because I really enjoyed it. Um, I read it uh, this past month. And I think part of what I really enjoyed about it is that you've clearly started with the scriptures, like you've done in-depth Bible study. There's a lot of scripture references in the book that you take the time to to break down and explain, um, you know, your understanding of Jesus's teachings on these things like social justice and economics. And in my own experience and in my own view, uh, this is a I would say an underdeveloped aspect of modern Christians understanding, at least, well, probably all across the world, but certainly for those of us here in the West. So what was it that motivated you to do a study like this of Jesus and his teachings on economics and ultimately write this book? Well, that's that's good the way you broke that up into two questions, because people often ask me what motiv motivated me to write the book. Um, and I wasn't motivated to write the book. Um, <laughs> uh, a friend of mine in publishing said, I want to do a book with you. And I said, well, what book do you want to do with me? And he said, I don't know. What are you working on? What are you thinking about? And mm -hmm. we talked about um, two or three topics that I'd been kind of trying to go deep on. And this is the one we settled on. And I was very resistant to the idea of writing a book. So, I mean, it's pretty common for somebody to set out to write a book and then go do the research for the book. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's that's kind of the thought leader model is you're writing books, maybe you write a book every year. Um, and so you're getting always getting ready for your right book. You're researching toward the book. Uh, that's not the way this happened. I resourced, mm -hmm. re resourced, excuse me, researched towards a desire to understand what, if anything, Jesus was saying about economics. With no, as far as I can recall, I had no thought whatsoever about this ever being a book. Um, I did mention it in some sermons. I did mention it in you know, pieces of it in some speeches, but it wasn't book material. Um, and I'm glad of that because um, it can be sort of corrupting mm. when you know in advance that you got to do a book. And so what are you doing? You're looking for the thing. You say, well, if, if I've got a book, who's my audience? Right. Uh, well, if I've got an audience, what do they want to hear? Hmm. Um, and of course, 
no one consciously does that. No one says, I'm going to tell them whatever they want to hear. But really, anyone who does public speaking, anyone who, you know, preacher or a thought leader or whatever, you, you know, if we're really honest with ourselves, we get that we are very much influenced emotionally by people's reaction to what we say or write. Um, right. And so um, it was liberating just to want to know what Jesus um, thought, if anything, about economics and social justice, and just to deeply dive into the text and try to let him speak for himself. So mm -hmm. I did it because I was curious, because I'm an economist, that's my day job. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm a Christian, that's my all day job. Um, <laughs> and I wanted to know what Jesus thought. And what I had seen up until then is that people were taking their best thinking and hanging it on Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, now, some of these people had some pretty bad best thinking. So they were going out there giving us maybe a Marxist Jesus, a kind of first century Che Guevara, you know, Che Guevara, mm -hmm. right? A violent revolutionary leading a peasant revolt. Uh, you know, not very good economics and also not very good exegesis. But some people were pretty good economists. They understood how markets worked. Um, and they basically were making arguments like, well, Jesus said help the poor, but he didn't say use government. I'm not super impressed with the what he didn't say arguments. Right. If we're skipping over enormous amounts of what he did say to focus on the thing that he didn't say. Or those arguments were something like, well, the free market's better and Jesus is good. So Jesus would want things to be good for people. So right. Jesus would want free markets. <laughs> well, right. okay, that's fine. The problem is it skips over the, the 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 pointed issue, which is whether the free market is actually better. Yeah. I, I as an economist, I believe that. But to basically say I think something and Jesus is good, therefore he must agree with me, is really mm -hmm. not letting the Lord speak for Himself. So I just decided to go deeply into the, all of the texts where he seems to be talking about economics and look at the original languages and look a lot of the historical context, look a lot at the geography and the right. biblical archaeology and let Jesus's message come up from his words and not just from his words, not just the red letters, but the black letters before the red letters that tell us where he was when he said the red letters. Right. So I don't want to just say, oh, Jesus went to Betty beside her, Beth something or other. And then he said this. And the, then he said, this is really inspired and the where he was is kind of just window dressing, but instead to look at where he was when he said the things that he did. Um, and a picture, I think a pretty clear pattern emerged, which I can't mm -hmm. find exceptions to. Um, and even when people have written critically about the book, they haven't been able to find exceptions to the patterns that I've observed. They just maybe don't like the conclusions or they think mm -hmm. somebody praised it too much or something, but nobody's been able to come forward and say, ah, no, you're wrong. Here's here's a contrary finding from the scriptures or from biblical archaeology or history. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's great. I, we're going to talk about different components of the book. There's there's a lot we were just talking before we started recording that I'm not sure we're going to be able to get to all of it, but that's okay because I'm hoping people will go out, pick up your book, read it for themselves, and do the deep dive. But there are some things that I, I certainly want to touch on. As you were, so so we'll get a chance to dive into that, but just a a question on the front end here as you were doing this research and and you were you were discovering these connections like you said not just in the red letters but in the black letters that preceded uh jesus's life and his teachings the old testament scriptures um in general were you surprised by what you were learning and how it differed from maybe your previous uh assumptions about jesus and economics or 
how it differed from maybe just the the popular theology that we see around us? I was surprised mainly in two ways. Um, I, I knew it would probably differ from popular theology around us because I just didn't see anybody taking this task seriously. Hmm. So I thought either I'm wasting my time or this is going to say things that other people haven't said. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so what was I surprised by? Um, I was surprised really by how well the pattern held. Hmm. I was really surprised. I didn't expect it to work as well as it did. I had some general idea, you know, from reading the gospels for 40 years, had some general idea, you know, where this might lead. But the, the thing is, with the deeper the deeper I dug, the more it held, the hmm. more it made sense. So as I would look at more and more historical sources, it didn't contradict, right. you know, what what seemed to be there, but it deepened it and and confirmed it over and over again. And there yeah. were even some instances where I thought, oh, you know, I, like we can talk about this later, where I was talking about the doves and I was reading gospel accounts of Jesus confronting the dove merchants, and then I got to John's account and I read. Hmm you know, half of the account and you didn't single out the dove merchants. And I thought, wow, I really made a big deal out of these doves. Um, and it looks like John isn't making a big deal out of the doves. I was really disappointed. I had to like give up my theory, but then I kept reading and said, and Jesus said to those who were selling doves. So hmm. after I sort of laid it down on the altar saying, okay, I really thought I had something here mm -hmm. about Jesus confronting dove merchants. Oh, John doesn't have it. Oh, wait, keep reading. He has it more than any of the other gospel um, writers except Luke, and Luke has reasons not to have it. So I am kind of jumping ahead. So it surprised me how well it fit everything. Every it, the, mm. the pattern is absolutely consistent when Jesus is talking about economics in terms of who he's talking to and yes. where he's talking. Um, what surprised me in terms of changing my mind is I was resistant to the idea of a Jesus who was serious about debt forgiveness. Because I had associated that mentally just because of my own upbringing, you know, like the Jubilee Conference uh, here in Pittsburgh and people who were sympathetic to liberation theology were making a whole lot out of the Jubilee Law and the Shemitah Law in favor of socialism. And mm -hmm. I reacted to that by turning down Jesus's right. references to debt mm -hmm. forgiveness. And I found yes. that the, the Bible just wouldn't let me do that. Yeah, um, that he <laughs> appears to have been serious about debt forgiveness. Now, whether what just happened, you know, with the, right. with the student debt forgiveness is Torah yeah. observant, I would say very much not. But right. like the conservative pushback, that is, so someone says Jesus is into debt forgiveness, and someone comes along and says, "No, he isn't. He's just talking about forgiveness of sins," and that's right. what tends right. to happen. Yeah. Right, the liberals turn up Jesus to one quarter volume, so he sounds a little socialist. And then the conservatives try to turn him down to one eighth mm. volume because they, you know, he sounds a little socialist. So let's turn him down. <laughs> Whereas I'm trying to turn him up all the way to full volume to right. see what he's actually saying and willing to risk the possibility that he has economic views which contradict mine. And in this particular case, he did. Yeah. Um, I see Jesus as clearly speaking um, about actual financial debt forgiveness and that it was an idea right. i right. didn't want him to take me there yeah so i i we're gonna there's three things that i know i want to try to uh discuss with you or three 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 major themes um one of them are just jesus's teachings on economics secondly i do want to get into uh, some great insights that i found 
that you had in the book about debt and the connection between debt, the fall, sin, redemption. And then I do, if we have time, I'd love to get into um, what are the similarities? What, what, if any differences do we see between the year of Jubilee and the seven year uh, debt remission that we see in the Old Testament system and that Jesus was referring to and what just happened in our time here in America with student debt relief, because that's obviously a current issue. And on the show, we're really, we want to have discussions like this because like you said, being, being followers of Jesus is our all day job and economics is part of our everyday life. So you, you had a quote in the book that everyone has an economic philosophy, not just economists. We all have it. It can be um, underdeveloped. It, it could be built by a lot of, uh, just assumptions that we've that we've caught over the years uh, based on our, our circumstances and probably those those forces influencing us most people and um, social social settings. But let's start. Let's start with Jesus. And um, I, I want to do this because um, I think that there, there, there are some dangers that modern believers could be making based on our understanding of wealth, economy, economics, money. And there's probably, I would say, some mistakes that we could avoid if we had a better understanding of Jesus. And you've already touched on it, but Jesus had strong views about politics and economics. And these were really based on the time and the context that, that he was living in. So um, I'm just going to read a short snippet from your book and then uh, let you build on this. But you wrote that the, the division between North and South, and this was um, modern, well, this was P Palestine or the, the Jewish region of Jesus's day was, was broken up between North, which is Galilee and South Judea. The division between North and South was over excess centralization of power and economic exploitation by the ruling class of the capital region. There was also a significant difference in the nature of the two economies. The North was based more on commerce and the South was based on taxation and the temple as a source of revenues. The difference was among other things, the difference between the makers of wealth and the takers of it, which is the central theme of your book. So tell us a little bit more about how the, the setting and the economic and political realities influenced Jesus's own views and that of his mother, Mary, because you touch on that in the book as well. Yes. And Mary was also a Galilean. Um, uh, and his, historians say she was raised in Sepphoris, um, which is a big city near Nazareth. Um, so we kind of think of Nazareth as just like standalone town. Like when I drive across Pennsylvania, there are all these little towns. No, not really. Um, it was more an exurb of a city, and that city was Sepphoris, and it was the financial capital of uh, Galilee, and it was very much a market-oriented town. Um, so Galilee in general, a couple of things. One, they didn't have the same tax system as in the South. They didn't have, for instance, the tribute tax by the Romans. Um, so that was brought down on Judea as a punishment. Galilee didn't have that. So they were a lower tax jurisdiction. By the way, that's almost certainly in the background um, as the religious leaders try to trap Jesus. Shall we pay taxes to Caesar? We just think it's shall we pay taxes to Caesar, but they know he's from Galilee and the Galilee doesn't actually pay taxes to Caesar, hmm. right? So there is a regional 
fight here going on. Um, and that regional stuff is so much stronger than we give it credit. You know, right. the, you know, the Galilean accents, you know, his followers are called out because, because of Galilean accents. Um, when Nicodemus defends them, they say, are you a Galilean too? That North South mm. rivalry is just <laughs> throughout the gospels. Right. And we just kind of skim over it, you know, mm-hmm. or as if it's just, well, any rivalry. Well, no, there was a very, this went back a thousand years. The right. North was formed in a tax revolt. Solomon died. Rehoboam was hmm. his son. Rehoboam um, was asked to lower taxes. You already the temple's already built. What's the temple tax for? You know, like I live in Pennsylvania, we have the Johnstown uh-huh. flood tax, right? Yeah. They imposed a tax to rebuild Johnstown. Well, it's been rebuilt for a century. <laughs> <laughs> What's the tax for? You know, I mean, the temple was built. What's the tax for? And Rehoboam raised taxes rather than lowering them, and mm. and the North seceded as part of a tax revolt. So it's kind of tax revolt territory from the very beginning. Mm. Um, so Galilee was lower tax. It was less wealthy, but more up and coming, uh, more entrepreneurial. Lots of small businesses. You had freehold farmers rather than gigantic plantation farmers. In other words, like you, you know, you walk a few hours to the south, you're going to see these gigantic hundred thousand acre plantations worked by slave labor, owned by somebody who lives in Jerusalem or Rome who's never visited that farm in his life. He's just collecting dividend checks wherever mm-hmm. he is. But up where Jesus is growing up, you have 15, 20, 30, 40 acre farms, and the farmer was there. The farmer mm. was working his land with his family, and you have Joseph and son builders. Um, and a particular uh, archaeologist said, you know, when you when you dig up a village in Galilee, you find three or four shops. So it was a shopkeeper society with a lot of small businesses. You had proto industry there, like stone jars. You know, back back around to the wedding of Cana. There's a whole thing going on with the creation of stone, you know, stone mm. waterware, which mm-hmm. I didn't get to get into in in the book. Um, and of course, the fishery industry, which wasn't just subsistence fishermen, it was fish, dry or pickle, and then export. It was industrial. So it was dynamic and kind of entrepreneurial and kind of up and coming. No, there is no record whatsoever of Jesus ever confronting anyone in Galilee about wealth hmm. at all. Well, it didn't have wealthy people. Yeah, it did have wealthy people. They've dug up Sepphoris. They, you can see the mansion. Hmm. You know, there are mansions in Galilee. <clears throat> but these are market towns, not political extraction towns. Mm-hmm. Every con- When Jesus moves south, he goes into Judea and right off the bat, first confrontation over wealth is with a rich young ruler. Hmm. Ruler, rich young ruler. And people just skim over that hmm. um, and think that the comments he's making about rich men are just universal, like it's a fortune cookie, could have opened it up, could have applied to anybody. No, he's literally looking at, he talks to a senator about wealth, rebukes him for um, defrauding, um, which because he was, Hmm. and then gives a little sermon about wealth while he's looking at the senator. And then to just take that little sermon and apply Mm -hmm. it to somebody who, you know, created new software or a farmer who's developed a a nest egg, you know, selling food is absolutely ridiculous. So rich young ruler, then Zacchaeus, tax collector, another man of the state. Then down into Jerusalem, the money changers, also men of the state. So all of the denunciations of wealth happen in the capital region with people who are part of the state ruling class apparatus. So would this be a fair a fair statement that Jesus was not anti-wealth, but his teachings um, around wealth basically pivoted 
between those who were generating wealth um, through industry, through creativity, um, and those who were extracting wealth through taxation, um, through um, yeah, th through other use misuse of power. Um, would that would that be a fair? I know it's it's simplifying it, but but essentially that's what we see at play here: the the dynamic in Jesus's teachings. Pastorally, he treated those groups differently. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Now he did make general warnings about greed. So entrepreneurs can be guilty of greed mm -hmm. and senators and priests can be guilty of greed. But right. every time he starts a conversation with the assumption of greed, he's talking to an extractor, not a maker mm -hmm. of wealth. Um, so pastorally, he treats them differently. Um, and I think pastorally, we don't treat them equally. We tend to treat them the reverse, which mm -hmm. is if somebody's a clergy person, then, you know, maybe we'll confront them over their religious status or something. But we're not going to confront them over money. We're going to assume that mm -hmm. they're not greedy. And if someone's in politics, we're going to assume that they're not greedy because they're always pointing at us, right? You're greedy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then if somebody's in the marketplace, we're going to we're going to assume they're greedy unless they can explain to us why they're not, <laughs> right? But that's right. the reverse of Jesus. Jesus's confrontations with the about greed and, um, and defrauding are with people of the state. It is a, it is particular, everyone has different kinds of temptations to different kinds of sin, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, everyone, can, I guess anyone can do any kind of sin, mm -hmm. but like if you're a rock star, you know, maybe groupies are, are you know, yeah. maybe that's your, that's going to be part of the problem that everybody does and you have to resist that. Okay. So everyone's got their issues. Everyone's got the kind of occupations, which this, which are the particular sins that are endemic to that. Okay. The particular sin endemic to political leaders is greed. Hmm. We know that because the, going back to Torah, when Moses, when Jethro talks to Moses and then Moses reiterates the choosing of rulers, you choose men who hate dishonest gain. So um, they have to fear God hmm. and hate dishonest gain. Now they can do other sins. People in politics can do other sins, but this is the sin that keeps coming up in the context of kings. The warnings about Saul taking 10% um, and giving it to his lieutenants and everything, uh, the Rehoboam, mm -hmm. Solomon, right. the not multiplying gold. This is greed, bribery, extraction is the sin that is systemic when you have a ruling class. Yeah, no, that that's that's really good, and that sort of might be a good segue for us to to get into um, the role that the the year of release, the year of jubilee, played not only in um, the Old Testament but in Jesus's life, because you know Jesus was born into the Old Testament, so to speak. Uh, he came on the scene um, at a time when the, the law of Moses was supposed to be. The guiding document for um, not just Jewish people, but Jewish society, and a, a lot of his parables, a lot of his teachings were, were were economics and the failure to keep the the year of jubilee and to to implement debt relief is a big part of what he was addressing. Would that be accurate? Yes, um, and that is. It would have been weird if he hadn't, mm -hmm. because the eschatological speculation at the time was when the Messiah comes, he's going to deal with the debt problem. 
Um, so it was widely expected that there was it understood that there was a debt problem, understood that the ruling class of Israel had been violating the Shemitah laws by creating little legalistic workarounds, that those violations right. centered on the temple. The temple was the way that you ripped the people off. The temple willingly hmm. participated in the swindle of allowing um, wealthy people to oppress the poor by not doing debt relief. And it was understood that there was going to there was either going to be one or two messiahs, right? Like a king messiah and a priest messiah, um, and the the priest, the, the, like a new high priest, was going to forgive the debts, um, mm -hmm. and that was going to end exile. Now we don't associate those things. Like we've got a category for forgiving sins, and we've got a right. category for forgiving debts, which is over here. It's more political, right? Right, and we've got a category for like military occupations and geopolitics, but mm. but basically what happened is Israel violated that the Sabbath system. And and Jeremiah said that's why they were sent into exile. He he explicitly says that right. they were exiled for violating that system. Well, they were still exiled in some sense. They were in the land, but they were still under Rome. They saw the Babylonian captivity is still going on. So mm. what? So what's the problem? Well, um, they hadn't. They still weren't following that law. So right. if if they were exiled because they weren't following that law, and they're still not. So the idea was until they followed that law. They won't have the sin forgiven of not following Torah, and they will continue to remain under the root of Babel, the 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 boot of Babylon. In this case, Rome is just a new version of Babylon. So all those things were all wrapped up together. So the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to forgive the debts, and God's going to forgive them for not forgiving debts, and then he's going to end the exile. That was expected. Yeah. So, and right. the first thing Jesus says when he announces his messiahship in his hometown is drawing from Isaiah and Leviticus about setting mm. the captives free. So mm -hmm. let me tell you, if he wasn't talking about debt forgiveness, um, there's a little pastoral malpractice there um, <laughs> because everyone was expecting debt forgiveness from the Messiah. Right. He was declaring that he was the Messiah and he was using a debt forgiveness passage. Right. So um, I, I think I don't think he was being misleading. I think he was spot on. Uh, he, yeah. he came to challenge them to actually follow the Torah. Yeah, well, I think in that passage, it even says that he found the place where it was written. So he had that passage in mind uh, specifically. Let me read a another clip from your book here. Uh, and it, it really highlights what you were just saying about how we tend to compartmentalize between political issues, you know, economic issues, spiritual issues. Uh, so you write our interpretations as we read the scriptures, our interpretations. Our interpretations tend to focus almost exclusively on heart issues and personal salvation, or for some, abstract theological formulations. Whereas first century Israel, although interested in heart attitudes, was consumed with outrage over the lack of debt relief and consumed with expectation about how the coming Messiah would proclaim liberty to the, and then you have this in parentheses, debt captives. And so Jesus is coming into this environment, uh, like you just said. So I guess for us, because we are in a totally different, you know, political, social, economic setting, uh, and we're 2000 years removed, as we read the scriptures, you know, how can we read them um, more faithfully and understand what was happening at that time, but then also make the translation into how it should change the way we live today? Well, I would say the, the, to do those two things, you do the first thing first, right? You study mm -hmm. the scriptures and you don't put 
um, anything on Jesus's mouth, you don't say, mm, no, mm. you're not allowed to speak to that topic. Right. You, you don't you, you don't go to the Gospels and say, Jesus, give me your religious teachings for today. You say, Master, teach me. Um, and if he's teaching on politics that day, well, politics is the topic. And if he's teaching on religion, you know, internal peace and piety, okay, well, that's the topic. He certainly does talk about those things quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but but when we when we limit him in jurisdictionally in, in advance, you know, by the abuse of render under God the things that are God and under Caesar's the things that are Caesar's. And then people just use that to say, therefore, God doesn't have anything to say to Caesar, except yeah. Jesus is God. And he just told us uh, about yeah. what's owed to Caesar. So yeah. he is he's speaking. He, he is asserting his authority over Caesar. Right. And you want to get a little deeper on that. Well, OK, so the, the coin has Caesar's image on it. So if it has Caesar's image on it, it belongs to God. Uh, excuse, excuse me, it belongs to Caesar. Right. 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 Well, who, whose image is on Caesar? <laughs> God's. Right. Well, then Caesar belongs to God. You know, yeah. th this 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 passage is not about how God's got his authority. And over here, Caesar has this. Hmm. This passage is about God has all authority. So hmm. what you render to God is everything, including Caesar. Um, so, uh, so uh, anyway, um, the, we, we don't limit him jurisdictionally in advance once we do that. And the church kind of has to do this together. We, I can't, I mean, I wrote a book, but we got to process this together. Then you build quote, a hermeneutical bridge to now. Mm -hmm. Right. And right. that's hard to do until you're already, you got to think like Jesus first. Right. right. So we got to get used to that. So spending a lot of time reading the gospels. In my experience as a Protestant Christian, maybe we're a little uh, imbalanced between Paul and the gospel accounts, mm -hmm. right? I, just yep. like from in my background, different people have different experiences. In my background, people go to a letter of Paul and start having theological debates. Well, right. okay, uh, uh, but Paul is writing a commentary on the gospels. Yes. So if you're not deeply drenched in the gospel, okay, so I'd say, you know, spend a lot of time in the gospels. I'm not saying the gospels are more inspired. Um, I'm just saying we, we, we don't, we don't, we tend to not spend as much time with them probably as we should. So just get used to Jesus. Don't tell him in advance what he's going to say. Now I've been doing this for some time. So, you know, I've, I've, I'm trying to have some insights about how something like that might apply to us today. Um, and because I don't think the Jubilee law is in effect. Right. For Christians. Um, yes. I, why do I not think that? Because it wasn't in effect for Gentiles um, in the old covenant era. So why would it affect Gentiles in the new covenant era? Right. Mm -hmm. It was for Israel. Right. Um, so I don't see anything about the New Testament that then would extend more Old Testament ceremonies and rituals to Christians. Um, right. But you Almost all Christians have said, however, these laws have principles, yeah. sometimes called the general equity, which can inform our decisions. Um, well, I think I think the Shemitah law did put a limit on debt and it did put a limit on how much you could alienate you know, family property. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm perfectly open as an economist to the idea that maybe we do place some debt limitations. Mm -hmm. um, but to come in when somebody's already become indebted, um, and there, this wasn't understood in advance and then have an imperial decree go forth saying your school loans are forgiven uh, when the lender 
didn't agree to that in advance like they had in ancient mm -hmm. Israel. I mean, a lender knew seven years was the ultimate amount this could go. Well, what, yeah. that we didn't have that agreement <clears throat> in advance. Um, mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting. Some of the people arguing from the Bible for the the, the um, debt restructuring, because it's not really debt forgiveness. It's, it's, it's taking the debt restructuring and it's shifting it from the student, ex-student, to the taxpayers. So the debt has not been forgiven. Hmm. The debt has been transferred. Um, for people who people who've made some of the arguments for that, pretty quickly they end up talking about Babylonian law, mm -hmm. you know, uh, rather than Torah. But Torah was contrasting with Babylonian law. The Babylonian emperor would come into power and say, "Hey, you know, I'm not all that popular. I want to be more popular," and a de a decree would go forward, you know, canceling mm -hmm. debts. But the Bible very conspicuously keeps the king completely out of it. It's just right there in Deuteronomy 15, debts will be forgiven every seven years. Um, right. So the way it was done now is Babylonian style, imperial decree to politically favored rather than Torah style agreed to in advance a matter of the rule of law. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with debt relief, I think that's <laughs> that's another area where as modern believers, you know, we don't we just don't really understand what the Bible teaches, or if we if we read the Old Testament, it's not something that probably stands out to us as being a major theme of the Old Covenant. This idea of every seven years, uh, and you know, they didn't do a very good job of enacting it, so maybe that's why it doesn't it doesn't stand out more as we read through the books of the Old Testament. But you know, you make a good case, and it 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 seems very clear in Scripture that it it should have been a big deal, like Jeremiah's prophecies and the exile being tied to their failure to give the land its sabbaths um, it destroyed it destroyed the nation in the babylonian exile and by the right. way it destroyed the nation permanently later because mm -hmm. the violence right. this 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 the, you know, the the violence that leads to the destruction of jerusalem you know really starts 65 66 a.d with a debt revolt yeah so jesus's warnings his chickens are coming home to roost and jerusalem right. is destroyed yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the, you know, I'm still, my, my thinking on this is still in process, but I, I think the practical outflow of failure to do debt relief um, and these workarounds that you, you highlight in the book uh, that many of us would not have been aware of, uh, so that they had a very intricate, the scribes and the lawyers, the, the experts at the law were coming up with workarounds so that um, the wealthy didn't have to um to to give that debt relief what it ended up doing is it seems to me that it, it created a society that was imbalanced and you had the haves and the have-nots and there were fewer of those fewer and fewer of those who had and they had more and more and there were there were more and more people who were being burdened um by having wealth extracted and that created a society that was very combustible and and it led to like you said the revolts in the uh in the 60s AD um, and perhaps literally that's... combustible. When Jesus is going to the crucifixion, he says, "Don't don't weep for me. <clears throat> yeah, weep for yourselves and for your children, because if this is what happens when the wood is it's green, green. Right. what will happen when it's dry?" So another forty years of debt accumulation and right. extraction by the ruling class yeah. um, makes it combustible. And right. it's, but it's important to understand this is not a situation where somebody works hard and they've got a farm and they grow the farm. 
and they, you know, or this is not a situation where somebody builds a building business and they have a lot of employees and they're growing and they're thrifty and they're, right. they're haves because they deferred gratification. This system was tied up with the idea when people were indebted, they weren't indebted for plasma screen TVs. They weren't mm. indebted for college educations. The debt was generally associated with taxes. So the tax man, whether it's mm. the government tax man or the temple tax man comes and says, time to pay your taxes. Oh, I don't have the money. That's okay. We'll put it on your account, right? Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. the vig starts running. So right. you know, people like Zacchaeus were tax collectors and bankers at the same time. So let's let's imagine the situation is we have a high tax situation, and we do in the United States could be worse, and people can't pay their taxes, and the IRS <laughs> says, well, okay, we're going to tax you more than you can pay. And then we're going to charge you interest on that. And for the rest of your life, you will be working on paying off that tax burden. See, right. it's the state power. It's not haves and have nots between makers and makers not. Mm. The haves took it. And the not haves, for the most part, had it taken. So that's mm. so to basically bring in debt forgiveness into our society and say somebody who bought a college degree without really thinking about the cost. And they didn't really think about whether the major would give them a good standard of living. And they didn't take whatever job was available when they graduated, but they just, you know, stayed home or whatever. I'm not sure that we should just take the situation that Jesus right. talked about and map it onto that because the the debts that people had that Jesus was talking about were largely involuntary debts. Yeah. I mean, so, so, you know, we can have a conversation for sure in modern times, especially in a, a representative a republic democracy like we live in, we should be able to have a conversation about, hey, do we want to do this? Is this a good policy for us as Americans to um, forgive student debt? It's not that that discussion shouldn't happen. And we may come to the same conclusion that the current administration did. Um, it's just not apples and apples with what the Bible is describing when it talks about debt relief. Would that be, would that be accurate? Yes. Um, and I doubt that we would come to the same conclusion as the current administration did mm -hmm. if we were taking the text seriously. Mm -hmm. If we're taking the text seriously, it might be that we put a limit on how much someone can indebt themselves. Yeah. So that in advance, Sally May or the university or, you know, Pell Grants or whoever, whoever's making, right. you know, they, they, they'll only <clears throat> advance a certain amount right. or they'll know in advance that it's only going to be six years of payment. And right. that is agreed to in advance, right. um, as opposed to a, a de facto politically motivated. Like, for instance, tomorrow in the lectionary, you have the parable of the um, of the unfaithful steward. Mm -hmm. he, he's forgiving debts, but mm -hmm. it's a bad example. So we, we have a parable in the Bible that has debt forgiveness that is a, a negative example. Mm. A man who has been mismanaging resources mm. yeah. decides to for to, afraid of losing his position decides to forgive debts specifically in a way for people who it will help him personally to forgive those debts in right. order to make himself popular with people in order to not lose his position um and it's not they aren't debts to him that are being forgiven they're debts to you know his, his master 
So, mm-hmm. I mean, that seems to that seems to track pretty well with what the yeah. president did. So I've seen yeah. some Christians on the interwebs, you know, saying, oh, by the Bible always supports debt forgiveness. No, it doesn't. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. The parable of the unfaithful steward is a story about how debt forgiveness, when it's done in a de facto favoritistic way, is actually unfaithful. Yeah. Well, if... um. I think we're going to do a little bit of a, an extension, but I do want to wrap up this first portion of our, our time together. And I guess I would I would ask it this way and just love to hear your thoughts. You know, you've done this in-depth study. You've written this book, which takes a lot of time and thinking. Um, and so you've, you've really tried to discern Jesus's teachings around this topic of wealth, economics, could you highlight for us, you know, two or three major themes? Like what, what, do, what do modern Christians need to understand about Jesus's views on wealth that maybe we're missing? If you are a maker, you are not guilty until proven innocent. Quite to the contrary. Uh, if you are a taker, you are, in fact, already guilty in some way. Um, so that the temptations of greed are associated with people who make their living at the expense of other people by extracting or taking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that those groups, whether political or clerical, have gotten so good at the accusation mm-hmm. game that they've pointed away from themselves so much that we have inverted the message of Jesus. And so, for example, I think probably the most famous sort of financial story in the Gospels is Jesus confronting the money changers. And I've heard people use that. President FDR in his first inaugural pointed hmm. to that story as an attack on markets. Hmm. And that's it's completely the opposite of that. They had government-granted monopolies. They had a government-granted exchange rate. That government-granted exchange rate was a cheat it was a 100% upsell. They legally had to go there to pay the temple tax. This was state power from the top down from the beginning, overriding markets. So what about all the little falafel stands that Jesus passed on his way to the temple where, you know, where people are exchanging money all the time? Not a word about any of that. People are certainly making change you know, in Jerusalem for all sorts of reasons. But it isn't until he gets to the central bank because the temple was the central bank and the official open market operations you know, of, of that, where it's, where it's basically saying, oh, you need the temple shekel to pay the temple tax. Well, the temple shekel is twice as expensive as it would be under Torah mm. because it's got to, got to be glorious because it's about God. So, you ha- so basically there was a 100% upsell on that. That's wow. greed. So mm. I, th- I think that Christians should tap into Jesus's anger about social mm. injustice. Just understand that his anger is about people who use coercive power and religious Mm. manipulation to take from productive people. His anger is not at the people who somehow in life have had enough less taken from them that they've been able to build up some assets. Jesus had a lot of neighbors like that, and he doesn't confront any of them. He had a friend like that, Mm. Joseph Mm. Arimathea, no confrontation. It's only Mm. the takers who get confronted about economics and social justice, not the makers. Well, Jerry, I really appreciate it. Um, I think we could go for a lot longer. Um, I know I'm interested in learning more from you, but I appreciate you taking this time to share with us. Again, the book is called The Maker, 
versus the takers. And I hope people will check it out. I think it's it's got um, some great lessons. And again, it's it's very much based on the scriptures. It's not just, uh, you know, Jerry, like you said, you start with understanding what was going on at the time and what Jesus was teaching in that context. And then we can begin to try to uh, translate it into how it should affect the way that um, we live today. But great book. I hope folks will check it out. And um, where else? I know you have a podcast. Where else can people connect with you? Well, Meeting of Minds podcast is where I have the podcast. I also do one for Christian Post called Business in the Kingdom. Um, I'm on social media, so I don't generally have like a Jerry Boyer web portal um, because I'm not really trying to do that branding, but you can find me on Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn. A lot of these conversations are in LinkedIn. I'm easy to find B-O-W-Y-E-R if you remember the W and we can continue the conversation. Yeah, I'll encourage people to do that. And we'll put some links in the show notes so that folks can uh, connect with those different social media sites more easily. All right, Jerry, thanks again for being with us. My pleasure, Andrew. 